So our second Bible reading for tonight comes from Genesis chapter 3, which hopefully you can all find on your pew Bible. Um, Cool. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. human have fallen from grace. We pray, Lord, that you'll teach us your ways, help us to know how we are to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to start with a question, and that is, do you think there is evil in the world? Is there such a thing as evil? I mean, is evil a real thing? I mean, when you consider the things around the world, you turn on the news, you listen to the radio, and you hear of all the things around the world, every single day in the world, somewhere, there will be someone who is abducted, someone who is kidnapped, someone who is abused, 
someone who is assaulted, someone who is murdered. Somewhere around the world, there is always something happening. And so when you consider these things, it happens every day, around the world, somewhere, someplace, these things are happening. Can you call those things evil? Are we allowed to call those things evil? Or are they just the norms of life? That this is the way it is, this is how it happens, this is how it goes. Can we call evil, evil? Well, you see, it actually depends on your world view, what your world view is. And so, for example, if your world view is pantheism, that is, everything is God and God is in everything. God is not personal. And so you find this view in in religions like Hinduism or New Age spirituality or mysticism. God is everything and in everything and, and there is no personal God. Or in such a world view... There is no such thing as evil. So if that's what your worldview is, there's no such thing as real evil. All there is is the illusion of evil created by the mind. So in pantheism, there is no real evil, only the illusion of evil. And so in life, the goal in this worldview is to gain enlightenment so that you can escape and transcend the illusions of evil in the world. Now, what do you think about that worldview? Well, personally, I think it doesn't actually fit my experience. In my experience of the world, when I am hurting because of some injustice, when people I love and care for are hurt because of some injustice, that is evil. I want to call it evil. But if your worldview is pantheism, you can't call it evil. It's only the illusion of evil. It doesn't fit. Or if your worldview is atheism, that is the belief. It is a belief that there is no God. If that is your worldview, that we're all the product of random chance, and what it's really saying is that we're all really a freak of nature. We're not meant to be here, but we are here. Well, in this worldview, you can't call evil evil as well. There's no such thing in that worldview. You see, there's no such thing as absolute morality. There's no such thing as absolute right and wrong, good and evil if you call yourself an atheist. All there is is random chance and this philosophy of the survival of the fittest. Any sense or notion of morality is really something that comes about by social conditioning. And so in this worldview, there is no objective evilness. There is only lucky people and unlucky people. And so if atheism is the worldview that you hold then what Hitler did and what Nazi Germany did to the millions of Jews, you can't actually call that evil if you are a consistent atheist. You can't call that evil. What it is and all it is is the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the Aryan race. You can't call that evil if your worldview is atheism. But when you look at that, boy, it was evil. It was horrific. It was inhumane. It was as evil as it gets. But if your worldview is atheism, you have no reason to call that evil. It doesn't explain it. And so if pantheism, if atheism as a worldview doesn't explain why there is evil and suffering in this world, then what worldview does? What framework of thinking about this world explains why there is evil and suffering? Well, 
Well, what we'll be looking at today provides not only the strongest explanatory power for what we see and experience around the world. When you see these things happening, it is evil and you can call it evil. But not only that, what we see is this is a matter of what is true. And so as Christians, people who believe in the creator God who made everything, who transcends all the universe, we believe that there is an absolute truth. We believe that there is an absolute moral standard that God sets himself. There is an absolute right and wrong. And there is evil, and you can call it evil. If your worldview is pantheism, you can't call it evil. It's only the illusion of evilness. If you're an atheist, you can't call it evil. It's just random chance, survival of the fittest, whatever you want to call it. But as Christians, as people who believe in the creator God with an absolute standard, we can call evil, evil. There is a reason for why evil exists and we'll see that today. We don't need to deny that evil exists. We don't ignore it and we don't think that it's just an illusion. We call evil, evil. This is our worldview and only when we recognise that evil is evil then we can work out what can the solution be. What is the solution to this problem? And so that's a little intro to what we'll be talking about today, but a quick recap now on what we've seen last week. Remember, this is a 10-week series. We've started last week at the beginning where we saw the beginning and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, the way we are to understand the whole Bible, written by many authors, many books, uh, many subjects, we are to understand it as one book, One story written by one ultimate author on one ultimate subject and that is God's supreme plan of salvation through his son Jesus Christ. And so last week what we saw was the pattern of the kingdom of God that was established at creation. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so let's quickly recap. This is what we looked at last week. At creation, when the kingdom of us was established, who were God's people? Anyone remember? Adam and Eve. Right. They were God's people. Where was God's place? Eden. I heard that. The garden. And what was God's rule? Yep, it was his word. God ruled by his word so that they might enjoy perfect relationship with God. That is the pattern of the kingdom established at Genesis. At the beginning, very beginning. Today what we'll look at is, that was last week, today we'll look at the fall. Fall from that pattern, a destruction of that pattern. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the rest of it and we'll make our, our uh, each week we'll do an, a new one. And so today we'll be looking at the fall. So what we saw last week was the garden, what was there was perfect. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. But what we see today is with the fall, that is all destroyed. Humanity falls into rebellion. And so humanity moves from a state of innocence and they move from that to a state of guilt and shame and rebellion. And so that's what we're seeing today and it all begins with this interaction between the serpent and the woman. So I'd like you to look at Genesis 3. We'll look through a few of these verses. So this interaction, well what we read here is this serpent, this serpent who represents the devil, represents Satan and he's described in verse 1 as more crafty 
than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now what this already suggests in that verse is that the serpent belongs to the realm of creation. That is, though the serpent, the devil, is powerful, he is a creature of God. He's not some eternal antagonist of God who existed eternally, but he's a creature that had a beginning. And so throughout the Bible, we never see a dualism. You know, the, the forces of good versus the forces of evil, and they're both of equal power, and, and you just don't know who will win. That's not what we see in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is that there is God who transcends all the universe. He is eternal, sovereign and powerful. And evil, you know, Satan and the demons, they're creatures within creation. Now when we look at this, we're not told here why Satan became evil in the first place, nor are we told here why Satan uh, used this serpent to represent him. But what we do know from this passage is that he was out to destroy the pattern of the kingdom of God right from the beginning. He was out to destroy the pattern established in the first two chapters. And so what did he do? Well, firstly, this serpent, he sowed seeds of doubt of God's goodness. He distorted God's word a bit. Have a look at verse 1. He said to Eve and he said, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say such a thing? Now, how did Eve answer? Well, you see, before this, it had never occurred to her, never occurred to her at all, to question God's word. She always depended on God's word, trusted in God's goodness, trusted in God's truth, always. She never stood in judgment of what God said. But now, with this seed of doubt which was sown, God's word became something to her which she could now question and examine And not only that, you can sense her resentment in this next verse. She corrects what the serpent says, but she actually also adds a little bit more. Have a look at verse 2. She says, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. God did not actually say that, or you will die. Now, having sown the seed of doubt, the serpent now challenges the truthfulness of God's word. God said, you will die if you eat of this fruit. Well, what did the serpent say in verse 4? You will not surely die. Questioning, challenging the truthfulness of God's word. And then he goes on to challenge the motivation for God's word. Look at uh, verse 4 following. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only was God not telling the truth, now you must question him. You must question his motivation. He's not forthcoming, he's not loving, he's withholding something good from you, Eve. And so that was enough. Causing her to doubt God's goodness, causing her to question God's truthfulness. And that was enough to change the whole course of human history. And so what did Eve do? Well, let's have a look. Well, what should she have done? Well, she should have gone to the serpent. You've got it all wrong, little snake. I will never doubt God's goodness. I will never question God's motives. God always speaks truth and I will trust him. That's what she should have done. But what did she do instead? Well, in these next verses, verses 6 and 7, we see here the most solemn and grave verses in the Bible. 
ignoring all that God has said to her and giving into the lies and the seduction and the lure of the serpent. What do we read? Verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. Now, where was Adam at this stage? Where was Adam at this point? Well, we actually read that he's right there next to her. Now, he should have stopped this whole thing altogether. He should have chopped that serpent's head off. But what was he doing? He was standing there next to her, watching his wife being tempted by a serpent. And so what did she do? She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked, so they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so here, the perfect kingdom that was established in the first two chapters, by chapter 3, it's destroyed and it's corrupted. Sin entered into the world and altered the whole course of human history. This is where evil began. Now you must wonder, why was it so bad? Why was what Eve did, why was that so bad? She only wanted to gain a bit more wisdom. Why was it bad that her eyes were opened up a bit more? Why was that a bad thing? Well, you see, it was bad because on one level, it was the blatant act of disobedience towards God. It was wrong simply because God said not to. And so to not take God's word as it is, it's really to say to God, You know, God, you can't be trusted. You don't know what you're talking about. It was wrong because it was disobedience. But on a more serious level, more than being just a blatant act of disobedience, it was terribly and horribly wrong because it was an act of dethroning God. What Eve and Adam did was to dethrone God. Don Carson puts it as, it's the degoding of God and deifying of herself. And himself, it's a claim, I am God now. I am God, I decide, I know what's best. I don't need to listen to you anymore, God. It's a claim of autonomy. Remember how last week when we talked about humans were created to be dependent on God, always not to be autonomous. It's to claim autonomy. Our Swiss theologian, Emil Brunner, he puts it quite well. He puts it very well, in fact. What sin is, and this is what happened. Sin is the the desire for the autonomy of man. Therefore, in the last resort, it is the denial of God and self-deification. It is getting rid of the Lord God and the proclamation of self-sovereignty. It is claiming to God, I don't need you. I'll rule my own life. Self-sovereignty. You see, when they ate the fruit, what happened was not simply them knowing good from wrong, right from wrong, but more than that, it was them deciding right from wrong, but that's God's job. It was not for them to decide right from wrong. And it wasn't simply being a, a lawbreaker, you see. They took on, took on the role of being the lawmaker, and that is God's job. That is God's role alone. And so effectively, what they did in eating the fruit was to take the place of God. I'll decide now, God, what is right and wrong. I don't need to listen to you anymore. I'll decide I'm God. I'm not simply an 
in the image of God, I am God. And so what they did was to dethrone God and to make themselves God, deify themselves. And this, you see, is the heart of sin. This is the heart of human sin. It is to usurp God's authority and to claim autonomy. And this is why every sin is always rebellion against God. Even as I hurt a fellow brother or sister, it is rebellion against God. It is an attack on his will, his purpose, his heart, his being. And that's why all sin, big or small, is so serious. Because it's so dethroned God and it's to say to God, I don't need you, I'll decide, I am God. And so what we see here is, we see how cunning and how crafty this serpent was. Now he, he merely twisted God's word a bit and he merely only questioned God a bit more. But what ended up happening was the downfall of all humanity. Adam and Eve, they were meant to submit to God's word. They were meant to trust God's word wholeheartedly, without questioning. They were meant to also rule over the animal kingdom, over all creation. They were made rulers. But what happened instead? Well, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God alone, they trusted in the animal kingdom, trusted the serpent. And instead of uh, trusting God, rather they doubted God and they questioned him. And you see here the breakdown of the kingdom of God. The original sin of our first parents becomes now the pattern of all sins in a sense. Sin is when we doubt God's goodness, when we question his truthfulness. We see here the downfall of humanity. And so what was the consequence? What was the consequence of that foolish act of our first parents? What was God's judgment on human rebellion? Well, the harmony that was established in the first two chapters now falls apart. God who ruled to bless Adam and Eve that they might enjoy perfect relationship with him, God now rules in judgment over them. And what we see now is a series of alienations and broken relationships. And so firstly what we see is, an, is the alienation between God and man. Man as in generically humanity. We see the broken relationship between God and man. And what was meant to be the perfect friendship relationship between the creator and his appointed ruler. What we see now is, is that it's now under the shroud of shame and guilt. See what happened when God came walking into the garden? What did Adam and Eve do? They went hiding. They went hiding. You see, they, they now feel this shame and this guilt before God, which was never there before. God was no longer this trusted friend, but God became a threat to them, someone to be feared. But worse than that, they actually got what they deserved now. Remember what God said, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And that's exactly what they got. They were deceived by the lies of Satan. Their broken relationship with God now meant that they, they were spiritually dead to God. And so what happened at the end of this chapter? They were banished from God's presence. They were banished from the garden. They were banished from God's blessings. And it was only a matter of time when they will physically die as well. And you see that in the very next chapter, chapter 4. The first boy born. 
killed a second boy born. Cain killed Abel. Imagine that the first parents and their kids killed each other. Murder and death was a reality now. And then you look at chapter 5 and you read it over and over again. And then he died. And then he died and then he died and then he died. Death right now outside of God. But then there's more. This alienation between God and man becomes even more evident as God is no longer seen as God. But as, we, as you go on through Genesis, you see that God is now a competitor of man, an opponent of man, a rival of man. By the time of Noah, not only were they wicked and every inclination of their hearts were evil and wicked all the time, such that God would even grieve that he created man. But what we see is that man, generically, man started to set themselves up against God. And so what we saw in our first reading, the climax of human rebellion is seen in the building of the Tower of Babel. God God said to them, you you need to scatter, you need to subdue the earth, fill it. What did they do? They gathered together in one place. They built a tower to reach the heavens. And why? So that they would make a name for themselves. They were not satisfied with being in the image of God, being God's image bearers. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The fall, the Tower of Babel, a demonstration of human rebellion against God. He is now a rival, an opponent. And so what was perfect in the first two chapters has now been destroyed, just in chapter 3. Now secondly, we also see the alienation between the man and the woman. That relationship is now also broken. Now what was meant to be one of perfect, beautiful intimacy and trust and love, what we see now is one of shame. As soon as they ate the fruit, what happened? Well, they felt shame. They were ashamed of each other. They were ashamed of themselves. They covered themselves. They covered their nakedness. What we also see is that there's also this selfishness in their relationship. What happened when God walked through the garden and he said to Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten off that fruit? How did Adam respond? What did he say when God found out? Well, yeah, well, that's right. What, what should he have done? He should have fallen to his knees and begged to, God, begged to God for forgiveness. Have mercy on me and have mercy on Eve. I'll offer sacrifices. I'll do what you want. Forgive us, have mercy on us and for him to take on the blame. What did he do instead? He said, the woman... The woman, not just the woman, but it's the woman you placed there. It's your fault, God. Your fault for placing this naked lady here in the first place. (laughs) It's your fault. You gave her to me. She gave me some fruit to eat and I ate it. And so out of his own selfishness, covering his own back, Adam pointed the finger, not only to the woman, but really it's your woman, God. It's your fault. And what we also see is that this relationship between the man and woman is now characterised by sorrow and pain. The relationship which was meant to be beautiful, harmonious, complementary, that's now broken. You see, both were meant to be rulers together over all creation. They were meant to be ruling together, they were equal before God, but yet they were different. Adam was created first, Eve was created as the helper, they were to have a complementary relationship. You can see that that is the case. 
Adam wasn't made and designed as the one who would give birth. Eve was. They were to complement each other. They were equal but different. But what we see now is the beginning of the battle of the sexes. It began right there in Genesis 3. Have a look at verse 16. This is the first hint of this big problem. Verse 16, your desire will be for your husband. This is speaking to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, it might sound a bit cryptic, but what he's saying here is rather than a sacrificial, loving leadership on the husband's side, it is now a leadership of harsh, exploitive and abusive rule. And rather than a willing, voluntary submission on the wife's side, it's now where she strives to gain control over him, to dominate him. Her desire is for his position of authority. And so that beautiful intimacy of Genesis 2 by Genesis 3 has been broken. Now finally there's also the alienation between man and creation. Now just as God experienced rebellion from man against his own legitimate rule, now man will also experience rebellion from creation against his own legitimate rule. And so the rulers of the earth will no longer rule easily rather than being a joy to work the earth, to garden, to tend the garden, to care for creation. It is now difficult. Work is toilsome. It is burdensome. It is unfruitful and it is painful. The land is cursed. We read here is it produces thorns and thistles. So every time you go and do your gardening, you see weeds, that is God's curse on creation. Gardening was not meant to be fun. For some it is, but it's a curse, the way it is now. And so what we see here, man's alienated from creation. Man and woman, there's an alienation there. And man and God. The perfect order in the beginning now totally messed up. And so what can we say? What can we say happened to the established kingdom of God? Well, Adam and Eve were made in the very image of God. They enjoyed the highest privilege, the highest honour in all of creation. That was theirs already. But yet they wanted more. They lusted for the throne which was not theirs. And so they lost the privilege that was already theirs. And in the end, in a sense, they became less than human because they lost the one thing that was uniquely theirs and that is their relationship with God. And so if we look at the development, each week we're going to build on this picture, build on this table. Now this table, by the way, it comes from a book called God's Big Plan by Vaughan Roberts. Excellent book, worth reading. And so last week we saw the pattern of the kingdom, God's people, God's place, uh, over God, uh, under God's rule, today the perish kingdom. So who do you think are God's people now? In by chapter three, it's actually no one. Adam and Eve banished from God's presence, banished from the garden, banished from God's blessings. What about God's place? Well, that's again nowhere. There's no nowhere. They're banished from the garden. What about God's rule? Well, God now, you see, rules in judgment. There are curses and death reigns. And so when we consider this, 
It actually makes sense of our worldview. There is wickedness and evil in the world and we can call it as such because of this. This is where it began. This is the reason why we can say there is evil and suffering. It is a reality. We experience it because it started with human rebellion. It actually makes sense of our world. You see, if your, if your worldview is pantheism, it actually doesn't really make sense of the world. Evil is real. It's not just an illusion. If you're an atheist, you can't call evil evil. But in this worldview where God is the creator and we stuffed it up, evil is real. Humans, you see, were made for greatness. We were made in the image of God. We were made for greatness and that's why human beings are able to perform such amazing feats. Uh, Humans have the ability to show such great love and mercy and compassion and sacrifice. We were made for greatness. But what we did was we sought greatness in the wrong way. We sought greatness not under God, but we sought greatness in opposition to God. And ultimately, it's in the place of God. And this is rebellion. This is where it started. And this is the heart of sin. And so when we consider our world today, if you consider that and you consider our world, it actually makes sense of our world. It makes sense of our world, why there is sin, why there is evil, why there is suffering. And when we consider the present reality, evil is real. It's not just an illusion. It's not a matter of being unlucky. Sin pervades every part of creation. It pervades every part of our lives, such that we're all tainted by this sin that happened back there. We're stained by it and we're corrupted by it in our thoughts, in our deeds, in all our life. And what has sin led people to do? Well, think about it. Sin has led me to do things like lie, to, to act selfishly, to be greedy, to be hateful, to be hurtful, to be cruel. Sin has led people to, to be responsible for crazy crimes around the world, atrocities around the world. But worse than that, At the heart of sin, and this is worth remembering, every time we sin, what we're doing is we're deifying ourselves. We're saying, I am God. I know what's best. I'll decide, not you, God. And so I'll dethrone you, God. And that's really an an attempt at killing God, killing his rule over us. That's what happens when we sin. We're claiming the place of God. We're dethroning God. Now, you might be thinking, isn't that a bit too much? You know, a little sin, is that really... Has that really got anything to do with God at all? That is, like killing God, dethroning him? Isn't that exaggerating it just a bit? But you see, that is the very nature of sin. It is always odious. It is always hideous. And, and, and if we don't think that way, it's because we don't actually understand the seriousness of sin. And if we don't understand the seriousness of sin, of sin we'll never understand what happened that first Easter. You see, when God comes close, what do we do? When God comes close to us, well, we don't like it. We kill him. Is that what happened in history? We kill God. Now, a Scottish minister, he puts this quite powerfully. Uh, I found this quite powerful when I heard of this and read it. He says this, If the breast of God were within the reach of men, it would be stabbed a million of times in one moment. And that's exactly what happened. He goes on to say, when God was manifest in the flesh, that is God coming in the flesh as Jesus Christ, 
He was altogether lovely. He did no sin. He went about continually doing good. And yet they took him and they hung him on a tree. They mocked him and spat upon him. And this is the way men will do with God again. This is what we've done with God. The heart of sin was manifested in a big way when Christ came. God came near and we stabbed him. This is the human heart. This is where it began. It's wicked. It is now depraved since the fall. We would even kill God. And so if you think about this this chapter, the kingdom was great, perfect. Now it's been destroyed. What hope then is there for the kingdom of God? It was perished by chapter 3. What hope is there for the kingdom of God? What hope is there for fallen human beings like you and me? What hope is there if we are tainted and stained and corrupted by sin? What hope is there for this messed up and broken world? Well, you see, in chapter 3 there's in fact a glimmer of hope. Do you see that in chapter 3, in our passage? You see, evil is real. God's answer to that evil which we see and experience in the world, we actually see God's answer to our rebellion hidden in a promise he made. I want you now to look at chapter 3, verse 15. He's speaking to the serpent and what did he say? God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, our rebellion was no surprise from, uh, from God. He knew it there, right then and there and he put in this little promise. You see, one day there will be an offspring of Eve, a human being, who in the one and very same event will be struck at his heel, but in that same event he'll crush and defeat Satan and his evil, evilness. And who is this person? Who is this seed, this offspring of Eve? Well, that's why we're doing this series. We want you to see how this is one big story. One big story, the Bible, one big story, written by one ultimate author on one ultimate subject. And that centres on the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we trace this, we'll see that it will end up being Jesus, the Son of God. He was struck at the heel and he crushed Satan's head. And when did that happen? When did that happen? Well, it happened when Jesus was hanging there on the cross. You see, when Jesus was there hanging, dying, Satan and his demons, they're probably thinking, we've killed the Son of God. We've won. And you can just imagine them dancing around the cross, at the foot of the cross, because the Son of God was dying. But in that same event, when man killed God, the powers of sin and death, the powers of Satan and his demons were crushed and defeated by the Son of God in that very same event. And so this is God's answer to the problem of evil. It is real. But God's given us that glimmer of hope right there in chapter 3. And in the end, this hope will cost his son his life. But you see, this is the promise right there from the beginning. We want to see it as one big story. God had his plan that one day all our guilt, all our sin, all our shame will be dealt with in the most wicked, the most horrific the most evil act in all of history, the killing of God. But in that same event, the greatest display of victory ever, the salvation of man and woman and the restoring of the kingdom of God, that is what we'll see. How wonderful is that? Right from the beginning, 
God had his plan. He sent us on his son, who will, through whom he will bring salvation to us all. So let's pray.